0: Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape and Beer with support from The North Face. Never stop exploring. Dr. Squatch. Get dirty, stay clean. Chorus. Explore perfection. An element. Restoring health through hydration.
1: Oh, your wife is calling me. Um... Oh, what the heck? <laughs> tell her to
0: get her, her Oh, get no. <laughs>
1: oh,
0: my God. We lost our guest because my wife me. <laughs> Classic. Sorry team. <laughs> yeah, no worries. Uh, maybe uh, put it in uh, put it in Do Not Disturb.
1: Okay, perfect. But uh,
0: Sonny was probably calling you to tell you that she sent a prod and she's all fired up.
1: Oh, nice. That's awesome. If it Jurassic Park.
0: Yeah, she went to the death. She's all psyched. Aww. So um, you want to just start with uh, your name and what you do.
1: Okay. So my name is Sandy Russell. I currently run a small creative agency called Sandy Russell Creative, but I used to work at Google doing global brand marketing for Google Maps, Earth, and Street View, which meant I did a lot of fun projects like April Fools, Santa Tracker, and then doing other just like fun projects, fun, impactful projects with Street View and Earth.
0: Are the Street View and Google Earth projects, are they more impactful or fun?
1: I mean both. It depends. Like so for example, I mean you've seen some of this work. Like when we did the Mont Blanc project, we used Google satellite imagery to like actually look at how climate change was advancing in the Mont Blanc region. Like you could see the glacier shrinking.
0: Yeah. (laughs) You're like, "Mm, no. (laughs) No, 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 I I agree. I agree. It's
2: 2015, and Sandy is this Google Maps storyteller. She's taking this very powerful but kind of utilitarian tool and figuring out how to turn it into something that totally shines, into something that that can go viral.
1: Uh, So the idea was to capture places that were important to cultural heritage. And around the time that I came on was this idea of how we could, one, expand the program because the technology was expanding. So where are new, interesting places we could take the street view technology? And two, when we're capturing these places that are really important to our cultural heritage, who are actually the people that bring them to life? That's where you come in.
0: Ooh, I mean... You- why does climbing even count as part of our cultural heritage?
1: I mean a couple of different things. One, clearly, like we didn't just want to get Western European history and like that's why we were going places like Anchor Wat. So in general, we wanted to kind of expand that definition anyway. Two, it wasn't necessarily about climbing, it was about Yosemite um, and how to bring the Yosemite to life in a new and interesting way.
0: And so what did that wind up meaning for this
3: project?
1: So one is we got individual panos of you guys, so you, Lynn Hill and Tommy. On key parts of um El Cap that were really like significant so we got like Lynn Hill on the Jardine Traverse I think we have a photo of you doing the King Swing and clearly Tommy on, a, on, on a, the Dawn Wall
0: on a six mil rope I remember it because we were <laughs> it was it was all very scary because we were filming it every time I swung back and forth I was like is this the time my rope's gonna cut I was like we'll see yeah as a person <laughs> so,
1: on the ground I'm just like oh my god but it all worked out fine
0: <laughs> yeah exactly yeah that was a that was one of those times where I was too committed to authenticity because I'd, I'd soloed the nose that way yeah, and I was like I should use the gear that I used when I was soloing it but in retrospect I definitely just should have used a big fat static rope because <laughs> if you're up there posing like who cares about who cares about authenticity
1: if I remember that shot you're like we see it from the bottom <laughs> even so we don't even mm. see the rope that you're on
0: <laughs> yeah well it was, it was authentic and I was very scared Yeah, it's
1: great. But then the second thing that we did that I'm sure you remember uh, is we got the first ever vertical street view. So we got street view from bottom to top of the nose and it was the which I think it was like 300 panos or something like that. That was really interesting because that was the first time street view had ever been done in a vertical fashion and it was actually a huge challenge.
0: I still remember (laughs) that was that was harder than it sounded because I was the one that actually climbed the nose for the for street view and I had the little backpack on with the With the tripod sticking out the top and the what was it like six gopros at the time you know when you have a backpack with the thing sticking up above your head with a huge ball on the top anytime you move side to side you clunk the cameras against the wall and so if you scratch any of the lenses then you have to stop move the lenses around try to we had lens covers i think so i could hit them once or twice and then take the covers off and then you would hit the actual cameras once or twice and then it's kind of game over you have to like tilt it around so that one's facing out or facing down or something so But it's surprisingly hard to climb the nose without ever jostling your back. You know, it's like, I mean, they're chimney pitches. (laughs) They're like all these things that it's like, and all the, uh, all the hand cracks, like in corners, you know, normally it's like a V and you're all wedged in there. And if you lean forward, then the camera hits the wall and you're just like, oh, geez. And then we had, uh, was it five or six hours of battery life? So we wound up doing it in two halves. We climbed the first half in five hours and then climbed the second half in five or six hours, two different days. But it was like what an, what an undertaking it was, a, it, was a, it was. Yeah, it was fun. I,
1: nobody else could have done this. Collect like between the battery life and like knowing the nose and being able to move around. Like not only were you guys critical to capture as part of the story, but you guys were like a key rigging team. Ten out of ten recommend.
2: And the end result was this suite of content that people could go climb the nose on Street View. They could um, check out this YouTube video behind the scenes when Google launches it in the summer of 2015, it goes crazy. It's the number one trending topic on Facebook when that was still a thing. It's picked up by the evening news across the country and the New York Times runs a front page story. Had you climbed El Cap at that point?
1: Well, I no, I had not done the nose at that point point. Um, and I had not been up El Cap. Actually, the first time I was at the top of El Cap was for the shoe, and it was amazing and definitely like very inspiring. And I was like, I wanna climb this at some point and got to do that a couple years ago. Or last year, I guess. With my wife. Yes, with your wife. It was great. I did the kink swing approximately 20 times. Turns out it's much harder than you made it look.
2: <laughs> this is how the gospel of climbing spreads. Santa takes this bit of inspiration. That same feeling we've all felt, wanting to share the sport we love with others. She connects Yosemite legends to engineers and creatives. And before long, Alex is climbing the nose with a street view camera strapped to
0: his back, so the rest of the world can follow along. You know, it's like in 2015, the fact that Google Street View wanted to do something on all cap felt so novel. It's was like, that is cool. You know, like that is interesting. We were like, all you know. like ignored little children that needed attention at that stage, right? Yeah, <laughs> like, well, kind like... of. I mean, I think I think I did that project for free probably because I was just like, this is cool. And, you know, you're just like, yeah, I'll, I'll go work on El Cap for a bunch of days just because this is a cool project.
2: And Sandy's snowball, it becomes a giant snowball that wraps up tens of millions of eyeballs and imaginations. Sandy's project is a giant snowball. Well, 2015 is the year climbing becomes an avalanche.
0: I'm Alex Arnold. I'm Fitz Cahal. You're listening to Climbing Gold. Actually, out of curiosity, do you do any sports? Like, what, uh, what do you do no. for activity?
3: <laughs> uh, nothing. I um, walk up and down my stairs. Um, I, I run a little bit. I do some trail running here. This is Gotham.
2: the person who may be so responsible for climbing's astronomical growth do in the last kind of, decade. Well, you know,
0: hiking and camping kinds of stuff um like like casual trail running or like serious ultra no, running? no
3: pretty casual and the older i get the more casual it gets yeah. <laughs> and, it, and if there's <laughs> a category right. called trail walking I'm, yeah. I'm starting to veer into that one a little bit more
0: is it, that's a crossover with hiking right <laughs> <laughs> yeah
3: i prefer trail walking
0: Thank yeah okay. yeah cool 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 so you want to just start give us the basics uh your name where you're from what you do
3: yeah my name is john branch i'm a sports reporter for the new york times based in the bay area of california
2: He's actually kind of being humble. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist from the New York Times whose in-depth coverage of the Tunnel Creek avalanche at Stevens Pass set the bar for multimedia online journalism. Cool. And what's your connection
0: with rock
3: Uh, I don't have one, actually. (laughs) Yeah, it's just a, a beat that I kind of stumbled into probably 10 years ago and I'm interested in it. I think it's fascinating. I think it's,
0: um, I mean, was, w- were mainstream sports in the Bay area too boring and you had to broaden your, <laughs> your beat to, uh, to include Yosemite or, you know, how, like, like why climbing?
3: Yeah. So in 2012, I was living in, in New Jersey covering sports, you know, on the East coast, but kind of all over the place. And I was doing a lot more stuff out West where I'm from. And so I moved to California. They moved me to California in 2012. And as part of that, I wanted to kind of expand what we did away from like the main four sports or the main sports. And so I was just always on the lookout for stories more in the adventure realm, I guess. I remember I did a a story about abalone hunting here. And when I first moved out here, I was just kind of looking for things out of the regular realm. That's, and, that's uh, when
0: you know that the uh, the NBA season is slow when you're covering
3: abalone hunting yeah, in Bay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was, it was pre Warriors dominance, I guess. So I was just looking for things that were just different.
0: Yeah. How did you first learn about the Donwell?
3: Yeah, we had mentioned it a couple times in the Times, I think, in like 2011, 2013. So I was vaguely aware of what they're up to. And what's funny about all these things, Alex, is that you know one of the tricky things is that we tend not to write about people who have hopes and dreams of of doing amazing things as you can imagine i get pitches every day from people saying hey i'm gonna run across the country i'm gonna kayak from pole to pole love for you to cover it and i usually respond by saying yeah let me know when you're done sounds like maybe it could be a cool story Uh, i'm not interested in writing about things before they happen because it just becomes promotional probably helps them raise funds whatever we see a million of these things these ideas just kind of blow up so part of the trick is trying to figure out what's legitimate and what's not and what's really going to happen and what's not and what do we jump into in the middle of if it looks like this is actually going to happen and so a couple days into those guys on the dawn wall my editor called me and i was actually down at the rose bowl because it was january 1st and he said those guys are up on the wall are you interested in doing that i'm like yeah let's see what happens? And what's funny is that I, on the night of January 2nd, I must have driven back from LA to San Francisco. I was just looking into it. And I remember I was on my couch downstairs here, jumped online and I saw Kevin Jorgensen was on Twitter. Like he had just posted something. And I'm like, what is he doing on Twitter? I thought he was up on the wall. So I sent him a note, a Twitter note. And I even wrote this down at 8.02 PM. Congrats on the push so far and continued good vibes. <laughs> NYT is quite interested in a story ASAP. What's your hoped-for schedule? Cheers. At 8.05, three minutes later, he responded with a screenshot of their hoped-for schedule <laughs> and said, hey there, this is the best case scenario. A lot could change, but we will definitely be up here for another week. Let me know how I can be of help. I was like, holy cow. I'm like talking to him. It didn't occur to me I could like connect with him that quickly, if at all. And so I said, I think I'll drive up to Yosemite first thing in the morning. (laughs) And that's what I did. You know, it's funny because there was no like great ambition, no grand plan to any of this. If I, I, I remember I was telling my editor, I'm like, well, I was supposed to go to Denver to cover the Broncos. There was a Broncos game or something, and I was like, going to go to Denver. I'm like, you want me to go to Denver? Or should I go over to Yosemite? He's like, yeah, I'll go to Yosemite. So just very serendipitous how it all worked out.
0: So you're saying that Tommy and Kevin beat out the Broncos for sports coverage. <laughs>
3: That's, somebody else, I'm sure, covered the Broncos. Uh, well, I, I prefer to think that the Broncos got no coverage. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah they, they got no coverage. The Times just said okay. forget the NFL for a week or two.
2: January 3rd, 2015.
3: I drove to Yosemite first thing that morning, and I was, like, amazed that they had cell service. Like, it didn't occur to me that you guys have cell service up to the side of El Cap. It's probably the best cell service in the valley, maybe. I don't know. But I was trying to find cell service before I called them. And so I was, like, driving around, like, okay, looking at my bar. Where can I call them from? Got a hold of them at, that morning, like, at 9 or 10 o'clock, and talked to both of them and went somewhere, stayed the night there, and, and cranked out a story. And it turned out going on the front page of the of the paper the next morning not my decision <laughs> somebody some editors read it and said this is great maybe it was a slow news day I don't know exactly what was that play there back in New York but they liked the story and the, they put it on the front page the next day and, and off we were off we were going
0: and so what happened with that story? I mean, it really took off. Like, t- Tell us about the...
3: Yeah. So it captured the imagination within the newsroom. And I think once it ran and went online, obviously it got a lot of readership. I have no idea what the numbers were, but it did something to make us think, oh, we should k- keep doing this. Maybe we should follow this along. And so Jason Stallman... That was John's editor at the time. ...texted me or emailed me the next day. And I went back and looked at my texts. He wrote, you up for profiling Caldwell next or prefer something else? And I was like, yeah, I guess I'll profile Caldwell. And so I spent like the next day or so profiling Caldwell. I, if I remember right, I think I dragged you into this. I did drag you into this because a lot of the questions from readers were like, how does this work? What is this climbing? How do they do the ropes? How do they go to the bathroom? You know, we're getting all sorts of funny questions from from readers and I didn't really have the bandwidth to deal with it. And maybe I didn't know all the answers myself. And so we thought, let's get some experts. And so since I had just met you a few months before that, I was like, hey, Alex, can you help us out? And you helped us do a reader Q&A sort of throughout those next few days. Meanwhile, I'm going to go try to dig up everything I can about Tommy Caldwell's (laughs) backstory and wrote a profile of Tommy that ran on the front page again, probably two days later. You know, back to back A1s on this and we were kind of off and running and it was like, okay, I guess we're just going to follow the story to its conclusion.
0: We'll be back with more after the break. I've been a North Face athlete for almost 18 years, which has been incredible, and I've always appreciated their commitment to exploration. Summit Series is the name of the pinnacle North Face products that I use on every expedition, and I love that their tagline is athlete tested and expedition proven. I've personally tested these products all over the world, and they've always proven themselves. Future Fleece is the next generation base layer that I wear almost every day of climbing outside, whether on the wall or at the crag. You can shop the full Summit Series collection at thenorthface.com. I first found Coros when I was looking for a GPS watch that could track my biggest outdoor adventures. I needed something with a massive battery life that was also robust enough to handle the climbing. As it turns out, Coros is the only GPS watch brand that has done some serious development for climbers, from multi-pitch GPS tracking to indoor programmed workouts. The watches have a mind-blowing battery life. The Vertex watch series lasts for more than 100 hours in GPS activities, so I only need to charge it once every several weeks. (laughs) I only need to charge my watch so sporadically that I can never find the charger because I haven't used it in six weeks. (laughs) If you're interested in bringing new technology into your climbing training and tracking, you should consider their new Vertex 2S. Go to koros.com and use the code CLIMBINGGOLD to secure a free watch carabiner with the purchase of your new Vertex 2S.
2: Tommy... Were you surprised by the level of
4: interest the mainstream media took in the Donwall? I think before Kevin and I went for our big push, the you know climbers were paying attention. But then when we were on our push and John Branch started publishing the articles in the New York Times, that's when it really blew up. And I was completely surprised. Like, I, I mean, of course, nobody, I don't think that had really ever, I mean, I guess it probably <laughs> had happened in climbing before, but... You know, certainly not in my generation in a way that I understood. So it seemed absurd. Like I fully still don't understand it.
3: Pretty quickly, we j- we grabbed our graphics team and we have, I think, one of the best interactive graphics teams going. They do a lot of stuff off of my stories. And so I'm always really proud to work with them. And they had some really high resolution shots that they had gotten of LCAP and then mapped out their route And as they went along. This really sort of 3D interactive that you could sort of play with LCAP that then ran you know, a few days into this. And so we started to, like, invest more resources, you know, being like, let's bring the graphics team in this. Let's make sure we have a photographer. Let's keep John there now. And so we decided to kind of roll with it as far as it would go. You know, we didn't know exactly how it would end. I think probably halfway through, we realized at least Tommy was going to top out, but then it got dramatic in the middle with Kevin, (laughs) which I think sort of added suspense to your point too. And this is nothing that you know, I had any part of it all, but then all of a sudden, I think they were starting to get calls from all the different news stations, right? They were, you know, Good Morning America was calling and PBS NewsHour was calling or whatever else. I think that's maybe just part of the thing with the New York Times is that, you know, when we say it's a story, I guess some other people think, oh, I guess it's a story we should be paying attention to, too. We gave some sort of imprint, I guess, and so other people followed along.
0: It's being called the Climb of the Century. On a sheer rock cliff 3,000 feet above Yosemite National Park, professional climbers Tommy Caldwell and Kevin Jorgeson are attempting to do what no
4: climber has done. Yeah, I mean, after that first interview, you know, something struck a chord. Everybody started paying attention and we we did feel that like we were getting lots of requests at one point actually kevin and i just had to have this conversation and we're like how are we going to deal with this like we can't spend our whole days just doing interviews and and it just all felt kind of stressful to think about the fact that so many people were watching us especially since kevin was in the middle of like failing basically and so we actually made this decision that we weren't going to accept any more interview requests or anything like the only thing we're going to do is outgoing we're going to do our little instagram posts and that was it
3: famously tommy at some point dropped his phone um i think he was sort of fed up with the attention that that came pretty quickly and somehow the phone slipped out of his hand, supposedly. <laughs> or he's just slightly clumsy, you know. Whichever. <laughs> or he's just slightly, like, you, you know better any, than anybody. Whatever happened, the uh, the communication slowed down quite a bit after those first couple days.
0: Yeah, and and he went on to send quite easily. So, you know, there's obviously some, uh, there could be a correlation between dropping your phone and sending.
3: <laughs> yeah, there, there could be. Yeah, uh, I don't know if it works for you better. Like, you find, you know, when you're off the radar and away from public attention and doing stuff on your own, maybe it's just easier and you're a little bit more focus or something but he was uh i think he was glad to sort of get away from that and uh, i don't know whatever conversations he and kevin had i mean i don't know if he ever said hey kevin i can't believe you actually responded to that guy on twitter (laughs) message a few days ago or not but you know had kevin not responded to me this might have been a whole different thing
4: so the last day climbing to the top or the last two days really um we had this sense that something crazy was going to go down because. You know, the news trucks were building, everybody knew that we were going to basically succeed and make it to the top. This
1: morning, two climbers are celebrating a historic moment in their sport. Tommy Caldwell and Kevin Jorgensen reached the summit of El Capitan in Yosemite. The story we've been following from the start. Kevin Jorgensen and Tommy Caldwell.
3: They topped out. I was up there when they topped out, and there weren't a lot of people up there. You were up there, and there was, I don't know, 20 people up there maybe?
0: Yeah, maybe 15, 20 people.
4: Yeah. And then when we topped out, that was when it was really crazy because there was, you know, 50 people up there. You know, President Obama was trying to get a hold of us. Yeah, it was it was super insane, and that that was really like those last few days, and then that moment of topping out, where when it really struck us
3: how sort of insane the media event was. I slept there that night and and left, and the next day. I think those guys had to get up for the Today Show like at three in the morning or something, and then they did a news conference in the valley there. And there was all there were all these TV trucks, and because we had written all these stories up to this, we didn't feel like we had to like write like the day after thing. So I was just like, you know, washing my hands of it. And I remember walking by, going, "You guys all have fun." I sort of felt like we kind of left those TV trucks to kind of clean up everything we just we just did. Like you know, we spent a week doing this. And now we're just, we're leaving and new TV trucks have fun talking to Tommy, who can't talk right now because he lost his voice. Along with Tommy's
0: wife, Becca, who's helping out because her husband has lost his voice. Good morning. <laughs> that was amazing. I remember that at the press conference. He was so, I mean, he could barely, it was like a whisper. He could barely speak. And there were all those cameras and all these people. And you're just like, man, yeah. he's yeah, he was you, like the shell of a man, but... You think that was real, project.
3: too? You think he lost his voice for real, or was that like the yeah, telephone? He was, yeah, he was, he was worked. <laughs> Actually, not I not so physically
0: was... worked, but, uh, but yeah, he was sick or something. I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure.
2: So in 2015, a lot happens, right? There's the Dawn Wall, of course. Maru gets released in theaters. It's kind of the first time something plays in the Cineplex. Free Solo gets greenlit later that year. There's the Google Project, right? So how do we know that climbing grew? The opening of Climbing Gyms. It takes about two years to come up with the idea and then open your doors if it goes well, maybe two and a half years. So if you look at 2017, 2018, what you see is that the number of gyms opening in those years almost doubles. Alex, my memory is that you have read uh, Malcolm Gladwell's Tipping Point.
0: Yeah, I did, but I do not remember a thing about it. I mean, it yeah. must have been more than 10 years ago.
2: Well, the the very quick summary is that you know, basically... It's about the mechanisms that create social epidemics. Like it's how ideas become popular, how all of a sudden like everyone owns an Instapot, or like why large swaths of the population will be begin thinking or behaving in different ways or new ways. And one of the key arguments that Gladwell makes is, is the law of the few, that an idea, is virally spread by a few key sets of people. And the first group is connectors. They're like social butterflies. They're people
0: who inhabit different spaces in society. Well, I mean, I think in the context of, of what we're talking about with this growth of climbing, I mean, I think Sandy fits there as she's working for Google, knows a lot of people, interested in a lot of different things, and wants to bring them together.
2: The second group is are the mavens. They're the people that like collect information. They're curious, sometimes about uh, like obscure, random stuff. They're like tastemakers. Their word carries a
0: lot of weight. People listen to them. Yeah, so in this case, I guess John Branch is the maven, someone who, I mean, as he said, interested in the obscure sports and sort of the the, the fringe sports. You know, his word certainly carries a lot of weight considering he's publishing it in the New York Times. <laughs> you know, it's like he, has a huge, he has a huge platform. He has, he has a lot of weight behind him. So even if it's not his personal... You know, it's not it's not necessarily him personally that carries that much weight, but you know, he certainly packs a big punch. He's he, got a he's yeah. got a good megaphone. Yeah, yeah, he's got a really big megaphone.
2: Yeah. And the third group
0: are the salespeople. They're
2: like the people that believe deeply in the movement or the product or the idea. And I, I'm curious whether you agree with this, but like in the case of climbing, I think it's gotta be
0: the people. It's gotta be the gym owners, right? I'm not sure. I'm I'm trying to decide. I mean, yeah, there that is an obvious like climbing gym owners are obviously salespeople because they are trying, to, they are literally trying to sell climbing to the masses. But on the other hand, I don't know. I kind of feel like the the media, in in some ways, sells it even more than the gym owners. Yeah, or
2: like even thinking about just like the Jimmy Chins and the Renans of the world that are. Yeah, exactly.
0: That's yeah. Those are the salespeople. Yeah, that's a great point. But they're true salespeople are the the media types who are selling to non-climbers you know the people who are like putting this lifestyle in front of the mainstream public and encouraging them to quit their job and get in a van you know like that kind of (laughs) like that's that's the true salesmanship (laughs) there's like so many moms whose hearts have been broken (laughs) by like their kid moving into a van i thought they'd be successful yeah you know you gotta play the long game yeah eventually you'll you'll be proud of something they didn't have <laughs> did you think it would have an impact on climbing like you know what what did you think?
3: honestly, I don't remember thinking about it a whole lot and this sounds like I'm trying to avoid the question but i I think you know my job's not to make an impact. my job's really just as a storyteller and so whatever happens afterward I'm not that concerned about i I suppose i I suspected that selfishly this would mean the times would probably want me to do more rock climbing stories um and i suppose i i realized that you know publicly this would sort of th- help thrust rock climbing even further into the into this the public realm that you know not just the new york times but others would see like there's a viable category here of, of potential coverage but i i didn't i didn't have the the foresight to expect you know what might happen you know certainly didn't know what would happen with free solo or with with the don wall movie or you know that climbing joining the olympics i mean how any of this all fits together i'm not smart enough to, to to tell you i don't know if this if this is like a logical progression or not
0: well i think uh I think the story angle that we're pursuing for this is just that it's all it's all your fault basically. That climbing taking off is because <laughs> of you, just because it's it's kind of a fun it's a fun and interesting approach to this. Because certainly, I mean, climbing has really been snowballing, and it's hard yep. to pinpoint the exact moment when it, somebody pushed that first little snowball down the hill and it kind of started. But it basically started with Valley Uprising or the Dawn Wall. Certainly, by the time free solo and the Olympics comes along, like it's already a big snowball going downhill pretty fast. Yep. And so I think you know, chatting with you, it's fun to sort of explore, like, what is that moment where climbing suddenly really went mainstream? And, you know, I think there yeah. is a potential argument to say that you did it.
3: Well, um, thanks question mark, or <laughs> I'm sorry, <laughs> exclamation point. Yeah. I mean, I'll let you and, you know, you people that live in this world, I'll let you guys decide. It is interesting to think like when history books are written, like will you guys look at the 2010s, whatever we call this decade, is kind of like the decade where rock climbing really sort of went from somewhat of a niche, you know, always cool but somewhat countercultural back and kind of thrust itself into the into the uh, into the mainstream.
0: Well yeah, I mean right now it feels like the the 2010s is the decade that climbing took off. On the other hand, if climbing continues to snowball and get more and more popular and more gyms open and you know if climbing becomes the most popular sport at the next Olympics or something, you know or right. like if uh, if Americans win climbing in LA in 2028, you know things like that, like if it really blows up, then maybe the 2020 s will be the time that climbing goes mainstream. You know it's suddenly like the yep. next the next softball or something. You know if you were looking for sort of inflection points though in climbing's growth, the right. Donwall coverage is certainly one of them because you just couldn't have the release of the Donwall film or you know subsequently the popularity of of free solo without all that coverage.
3: I'm glad to be a small part of it as long as people feel like we didn't, you know, somehow poison the water to some extent or anything.
0: Actually, if, if anything, I think you uh, you, you tilled the soil or you, like, fertilized the soil. Because the thing is, like, you know, no one can really understand the importance of, of free climbing the Dawn Wall or free soiling El Cap without knowing what El Cap is or where it is. I mean, basically, you guys did yeah. such a, a service in educating the public as to what climbing is and how it works that I think that that really allowed a lot of other, you know, aspects of, of climbing coverage to... to to bloom. We'll be back with more after the break. Element is a zero-sugar electrolyte drink mix formulated with a science-backed ratio of sodium to potassium to magnesium. Each packet delivers a meaningful dose of electrolytes free of sugar, artificial colors, or other dodgy ingredients. It tastes great, and I've used it extensively on expeditions. Element is formulated for anyone looking to restore health through hydration and is perfectly suited for athletes, folks who are fasting, or those following keto, low-carb, whole food, or paleo diets. Try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, they'll refund your order, no questions asked. So whether you're a new or returning Element customer, you can get a free Element sample pack with any drink mix order when you go to drinkelement.com slash climbinggold. That's drinklmnt.com slash climbinggold. Dr. Squatch crafts natural, high-performance personal care products with no harmful ingredients. I don't shower often, but when I do, I use Dr. Squatch. I especially like the Summer Citrus Bar Soap. From soap to shampoo to conditioner, they help me look, feel, and smell my best for whatever adventure I go on. They're offering listeners 20% off any purchase for new customers with the code CLIMBINGGOLD or you can go to DrSquatch.com honald Dr. Squatch. Get dirty. Stay clean
4: we just sort of happened across this very intriguing form of storytelling like the fact that we were up there for 19 days and people could follow along every day and like get these updates that's kind of exciting it's like if you think about the olympics or something is this a big event that lasts You know, two weeks. Yeah. So you're excited about the next stage every day. And I think two a two week story that's unfolding real time is it just happens to be this really incredible, incredibly exciting way to to be a spectator, I guess. And we didn't realize that ahead of time.
0: I mean, how much of it do you feel like you were reporting the news and how much of it is creating the news? You know, because when you you make it a story and then everybody else piles on, because I remember showing up back in Yosemite and there were news like news vans and, and like satellites and you know the kind of stuff you see in a tv show like all along El Cap Meadow and especially in the winter when normally somebody's completely dead it's like this is insane you know there were so many news vans yeah. and so many reporters just kind of like taking video of the wall you know which, which thousands of feet away it's like little tiny dots I was like wow this is surreal but you know how how much of that do you feel like you created basically
3: yeah if we did create it and, and whether it's blame or credit or whatever it wasn't on purpose in any way. I think we just sniffed out a, a compelling story and apparently everybody else thought it was compelling as well. I will say it, it is weird because that doesn't happen very often. You know, I do a lot of stories on people where I'm the only reporter all along and then we publish this big story. And maybe then people say, oh, this is somebody we should pay attention to or something. But to have it happen in real time was really strange. And I remember I left for a couple of days because I went to do then a profile of Jorgensen. I went back to Santa Rosa and then came back to you as somebody. And when I came back, as you said, there were TV trucks. I was like, oh shit, like what is going on here? I was enough in that bubble. I didn't really realize the other media interest in it. When I got back to the Valley, I was like, oh man, this, this is something now.
0: Yeah. I mean, no matter what, the Donwall would have been the biggest story in the climbing world and the outdoor world. And, you know, it still would have gotten a ton of coverage within the normal spheres. Yeah. But I think the New York Times coverage really pushed it into the mainstream more and I mean, you know, they went on Ellen right after they sent. That's like, I, think, I think that's the probably the first and only time that a rock climber has been on Ellen.
4: The, the
3: entire world was watching you uh, try to accomplish it, and I just thought, why? I,
4: mean, I think uh, I got to quote Johnny Cash. If you're going to be dumb, you better be tough.
0: Uh-huh. I was climbing with Tommy right after, and he had to, like, dip out to go to Ellen. And you're like, oh, yeah, cool, as, as one does, you know. <laughs> so, as
3: one does. How many times have you been on Ellen?
0: Yeah, no, I've never been. I've never met Ellen, right. so well, you maybe, know. You should,
3: maybe you should try to do something that's meaningful and and remember, memorable. <laughs> she might invite <laughs> you. <laughs> Had this been anywhere else, generally, where trucks couldn't get to. And they couldn't literally just park and aim a camera at it. I don't know if this would have been the same thing either. Just the accessibility of the wall didn't take a whole lot of effort for media to come and do this. And so I think a lot of those factors just combined together to make this thing blow up
0: yeah that's an interesting distinction because even if they had been climbing on something like half dome which is just you know five miles up the valley you just can't park a truck at the bottom and it's so much higher you can't see it that well and it'd be really hard to shoot something of somebody climbing on half dome but on our cap it's super easy (laughs) you're kind of like right you know on this wall we can make an international news sensation on any other wall it's like not really possible
3: you know had you done the free solo somewhere else and everybody in the climbing world knew this was the baddest ass thing that's ever happened but it happened someplace that nobody could really envision. Nobody could ever see because it was so remote in a foreign country. It's different than it happening in El Cap with people standing in the valley watching.
0: Well, and, and, and that's an easy assertion to, to check because uh, I have, in fact, done that quite a bit, and, and yeah. nobody knows anything about them. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, you know, exactly. Not, not quite as hard as El Cap, but uh, but there are tons of solos like that. Like I actually, I made a list a while back, and I've done something like thirty-five solos that, that are that haven't been done before, like things that are sort of cutting edge. And of those, like maybe 10 of them have been sort of shot or like reported in different ways, like sort of, you know, became a thing, like got filmed or took photographs or whatever. And so then there's something like 20 of them that there are no pictures, there's no story, they're literally just in my journal. And it it is, it is interesting to see which ones become a story and which ones don't.
3: Yeah, I I think that sometimes becomes part of the, uh, the, you know, the calculus for editors. It's like, well, where is this taking place? You know, can we get to it? And does it have some sort of resonance, I guess, with readers?
4: How did the Dawn Wall change your career? I mean, it was definitely a blessing and a curse. It definitely changed my career and my life in a lot of ways. Like, Still, to this day, eight years later or whatever, I get recognized kind of wherever I go. Like, I was just in Europe, and I get recognized in the train stations in Europe or in airports or whatever. I feel pretty stable about supporting my family as a climber, which I kind of never thought that would be the case, and now I feel like it's the case and I'm psyched about that but also I think I enjoy the kind of life where I could focus on singular things very intensely like the dawn wall and my life's just not like that anymore I'm I'm, I feel like I'm pulled in a million different directions all the time and so it's getting it's getting pretty good now like I feel like I'm in a good spot now but it's taken a good like five six years to figure out how to manage all that
0: as you were writing the stories did you have some sense of what it was going to do to Tommy and Kevin's lives?
3: I think probably halfway through when I saw the TV trucks and (laughs) when I got a sense that they were were kind of clamping down on their availability, I realized, boy, the pressure on these guys now. I mean, it's one thing to have this dopey New York Times reporter <laughs> standing there, but to have like TV trucks and they can see it all happening, and they're getting their their phones are lighting up from publicity people saying we we'd love to have you on the Today Show tomorrow. And uh, I I don't know how that how they could have gone through that.
0: Yeah, how the, how they handled the pressure. It is kind of yeah. amazing. I mean, that's what I think is so incredible about the whole Don Wall story is that it's already one of the hardest. I mean, you know, at the time, the hardest big wall I ever climbed. Yeah, it's like this incredible athletic feet you know this incredible adventure and then you add the crazy public pressure and the public scrutiny and just the I mean yeah just the I, I can't get over the vision of the news trucks. it was like man El Cap Meadow is insane you know I've never seen anything like it
3: but I write stories sometimes where I think oh this is really gonna grab some sort of uh, some sort of attention or do really well and it just goes flat and sometimes you're like really that story kind of went nuts uh, you, you just never know and so I gave up a long time ago trying to predict like what stories are going to do? What's tricky about something like Dawn Wall, not knowing if it's going to, if they're going to top out or not? Most of the other events we're talking about, let's say surfing, we know there's going to be a winner at the end, um, or you know, sport climbing, we know there's going to be a winner crowned at the end. And so I think we're just leery about pursuits that are either yes or no, and diving into them and, and spending time and resources on something that that may actually just never happen. So we really have to pick our spots. And I, and I think Don Wall was different because, um, again, because of the credibility of Tommy and because of the location that it was, you know, not difficult to just send a reporter up there and, and go check it out.
0: So maybe we should credit the, the birth of modern climbing to the Tommy Caldwell. You're like, without his, his sterling reputation and his uh, just charisma, you know, then uh, then climbing doesn't take off without without sweet Tommy.
2: Did you sense that acceleration in climbing? kind of in the mid-teens too?
4: Yeah, I definitely sensed it, and I've heard it from a lot of climbing gym owners. Some good friends of mine who own gyms in Boulder and Denver, they said that because of the Donwall and right after the Donwall, they had like floods of people coming in. They're basically, like I'd go to the gym and they'd be like, thank you, oh my God, this is kind of incredible. <laughs> so many people are coming into the gym now. And so it became more financially good. And so then therefore more gyms opened. Yeah, I feel like that all contributed.
0: So of all the reporting that you did on the Donwall, how much of it do you feel like was educational? Like basically teaching people what climbing is, what free climbing means, like what they're actually doing up there.
3: Yeah, certainly a lot of it. And, and again, this is this is what happens when I write about sports that are somewhat of a niche, right? I mean, it can be surfing or skateboarding or snowboarding or climbing or ultra running. There's a, a world, a, a small universe of people that really, really deeply care about that. And then the 98% of the rest of the world doesn't know much about it at all. And so I'm, whenever I'm writing about something and I know this happened with the Donwall, when I'm writing about something and I get comments from climbers or I hear people are like, oh, teasing us about how we had to like dumb this down. Like I'm not writing for climbers. I'm writing for my grandmother on the Upper East Side or for the businessman in Hong Kong or whatever, like it's not about you. It's, it's about other people. So there, there is an educational component, a huge educational component on this. And so that first story, and I have not gone back cause I don't tend to go back and read my stories but I'm sure I would wince at some of the things we had to describe and I remember having a question in a couple stories I've written since then like can I say carabiner without explaining what a carabiner is right that, those are like the kinds of questions we have to ask when we write these things and I think that's when I, I roped you into this a little bit to say can you help sort of be our expert and one of our experts to explain this to people but there were very basic questions that for climbers I'm sure they looked at that next day story going really New York Times But these are the questions that our readers were asking. And it was just a it's just a product of the fact that they were suddenly interested in something that they had no idea about before. And I think sort of the magic of the story, I think kind of kind of what we're getting to here is that the day before these stories started to run, you had people who didn't know anything about this, who had never heard of Tommy Caldwell, who maybe had a vague idea of where Yosemite or El Cap was. But three or four days into it, now they have like this vested interest and now they're like rooting them on. And it's not unlike what you see maybe during like the Olympics where people have no idea they couldn't name a figure skater to stay, save their life. But all of a sudden on a Tuesday night in February, they are living and dying with whether this person's <laughs> going to follow or not, you know, like that just kind of happens. And I think it happened with the Dawn wall. We took something that 98% of the people knew nothing about and suddenly got people to care about it, at least for that moment. And if there's residual effects of that great, but it certainly wasn't part of any plan.
2: Next week, we go a little deeper with Tommy Caldwell about the impacts of the Darnwall Wall media coverage on his life. Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape Than Beer. Alex Honnold is our host. Today's episode was written and edited by Andrew Burton and me, Fitzcahal. Additional production help from Lauren Delaney Miller and Evan Phillips. Additional editing by Matt Martin. Music today by Brennan O'Connell, Dame Masue, Wildness, and Faring. Social media support by Jake Wheeler. Our executive producers are Lisey Hendricks and Becca Call for Duck, Tip, and Beer, and Jonathan Redsek and Ben Endy for RxR Sports. Thanks for listening.